You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Colonial Williamsburg's revolutionary city is history brought to life in every detail. For 60 years, the Margaret Hunter shop has been bringing some of the smallest of those details into being as they stitch extraordinary garments of revolutionary dress. Abby Cox is our guest today as we look back on six decades at the millinery shop. Abby, thank you for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> well, this is a big anniversary, 60 years of millinery. Where does the Margaret Hunter shop begin? How, how is it manifested in the early days of uh, Colonial Williamsburg's? Well, when it was, it's one of our original buildings, actually. So when this whole idea of Colonial Williamsburg started to come about, um, the Margaret Hunter Millinery Shop was actually a car repair store. <laughs> and so they had to do a little bit of work. And, and over time, the idea of having the millinery shop kind of came into being. And it had been the silversmiths beforehand. Um, it had been another uh, interpretive site as well. And then when they started doing the research and realized what it was, that's when they decided to go ahead and turn it into the millinery shop shop. Um, and, and so that's the kind of early stages of it all. Um, when they decided to move forward with the millinery shop um, idea, they actually was going to be both an interpretive site and also a retail store. So what happened was they started our costume collection for the millinery shop. And so pieces today that are iconic imagery of, of our extensive 18th century costume collection were actually originally purchased to be on display in the Margaret Hunter Millinery Shop. We couldn't handle them, but they were on display, which is really funny nowadays because a lot of guests come in and ask us, oh, is this real? Oh, is this from the 18th century? And, and we make reproductions, but it's, it's kind of one of these little inside jokes where it's like, oh, if you had been here 50, 60 years ago, the answer actually would have been yes. You could see these original pieces behind glass on display, but if you ever see those old images of the shop from the 1950s and early 60s, those garments hanging in the back are actually from the 18th century. Um, so our costume collection actually got started from that idea. That is remarkable to think yeah. of because if you see 18th century antique garments now in the museums, yeah. they would be carefully protected from climate, oh, yeah. from light, and preserved. So how funny to think that they started out as as displays in the shop. I know, it's totally different, and that's actually a benefit for us as well, because we're, we're one of the few interpretive sites that also has air conditioning nowadays, and that was because of the, of the pieces in there to help with climate control. So we're always very happy in the summer months. We're always very comfortable in the summer, which I don't complain about. Very happy about that, so yeah. So 60 years ago, it was one of the first interpretive sites, and I think it's probably got to be, like clothing is probably at the core of what people think of when they think about the 18th century. It's so um, integral to imagining mm -hmm. that life and that time. Yeah. How does the shop change over time? It starts out, you said, as an exhibition site and as a working trade mm -hmm. shop. How does it morph into a retail into shop? A retail. We actually, my mistress actually really worked hard to bring forward the idea that what we do is actually a trade. Um, because traditionally the idea is that milliners were simply shopkeepers. And so my mistress, Janae Whitaker, she actually, and, and the other women she worked with really 
began to push forward this idea that we women worked in the 18th century and, and our trades were trades and clothing wasn't made in the home, clothing was a business and millinery was a booming business and a good trade to be in for women. So, so over time we've been able to kind of grow and learn more about our trade and, women's, and women in the 18th century and, and all of this really interesting social history and as well as material cultural history as well. So, so yeah, we originally sold like feathers and hats and, and perfume and soap, and now we actually make those things too, except soap, we don't make soap. How wonderful to think yeah. though, there's almost two stories there. There's the 18th century history of the millinery, but there's also sort of the 21st century history of how we present history. It's, it's yeah. some nice layers there. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a very multifaceted uh, place to work. We should talk about the millinery shop just mm -hmm. in general terms mm -hmm. in the 18th century. Who are they making clothing for? What are they doing there? Um, the millinery shop honestly is for everybody. Um, young, old, rich, poor, free, enslaved, male and female, it, it doesn't matter. Everyone needs pieces to live a happy lifestyle, to live a comfortable lifestyle. People are interested in being fashionable, just like today, you know, buying electronic gadgets and computers and the latest outfit, the latest pair of shoes, the latest bag. We as a society are very into consumerism. We, we like to shop. We like to have those things. We like the, the process of that. And it's the same in the 18th century as well. So whether we are making things custom for the, for the visitor, the customer, whether it's a new cap for the lady or a new hat or maybe the gentleman will come in to get a new wig bag or a stock or a cravat, we also would be selling ready-made products imported directly from England, like tea and snuff and more obscure things like pocket pistols and bird cages and, and tea tables and, and teapots and tea sets. So as a millinery shop, quite literally, we sell a thousand different things. The root word there is meal, like millennium or millipede. It's a thousand. And so we sell a thousand different things. But what makes us unique from, say, a general merchant warehouse is everything is fashionable. So it's something everybody wants to have. And, and of course, there's always these different facets to millinery trade. There's milliners who go off to work for private ladies and like the aristocracy situation as like a lady's maid. So you'll see advertisements for women looking to hire a milliner, mad tool maker, and hairdresser all in one to be a private lady's maid for a woman of high status. And that's a really good position to be in because you have the one person and all you have to do is just make beautiful things uh, for that woman to wear. So there's different different aspects and women could work out of their homes and still do a good business for themselves as well. Uh, Margaret Hunter's sister, actually Jane, she did that. She lived right across the street in the Charlton house and she ran her own millinery business out of the back of her home. And Margaret Hunter you're, re you're referencing is of course the Margaret Hunter who the shop is named for. Yeah. It was an 18th century yeah. figure, the proprietress yes. of that shop. Yeah, and she and her sister ran the business together until her sister got married and then they separated the business so Margaret could what we believe Margaret could stay her own businesswoman independent from any brother-in-law or anything like that. It's wonderful to have so much yeah. authentic history about that shop and yeah. carrying it on. What have been some of the landmark um, developments in the Margaret Hunter shop over its 60-year history? As, as you're at this point that you're looking back over 60 years, mm -hmm. 
what are some of the big points that you see that are big changes, big steps forward for the shop? Um, our interpretations have evolved over time. Uh, so when we used to interpret things like the fan language or fashion babies and, and things like that, we've now moved away. So, so what is a fashion baby? The idea is, in, in some places, they, they, they seem to have existed, but a lot of people have read and, and, and have this idea that the way we communicated fashion in the 18th century, at least in the time period we interpret, which is the mid to late 1770s and very early 80s, is that they would send dolls over who are dressed in the latest fashion. Um, and, and that wasn't going on at our time, but we actually, as a shop, would interpret that earlier in our interpretive experience. And they also interpreted earlier as well. So they were talking about the 1740s and 50s. So that's something that you've now realized is not entirely appropriate to the time yeah. period. And But it was, it's, what's wonderful is we still have people who come back and remember that. And so they'll ask us or they'll ask us about the fan language. And for me, I'm, as, as a, a fairly new apprentice and never been exposed to that interpretation before, I'm usually going, oh, what? And fan language would be the way that a lady held her fan to yeah, communicate a sort the, of fan semaphore? Yeah, that, that thing where, you know, you, the, if you brush your cheek with the fan, it means one thing, or across your eyes, and, and you know, hold it a certain way, it does a certain thing. And, and it's one of those things where that's something that is, is so wonderful because that's one of the few things that people know about, but it's a 19th century thing, it's an earlier 18th century thing, it's this kind of nebulous idea that women communicated with their fans. And I always have to laugh to myself because I am so not coordinated enough to be able to communicate any sort of secret language using a fan. It's just so awkward because we've practiced it before as, as a part of our 60th anniversary. And I was trying to do it and all I could think of was, how were these women able to actually do this if this really existed? This is really awkward and I feel really silly right now. Well, it's a shame it's not correct to our time period because I can definitely see why people would remember that for yeah. years. It's, yeah, it's, it's something that really sticks out. but. It's a fun idea. What One of the really exciting things that we've been doing recently, um, and one of the big research paramounts, is um, our former apprentice, Brooke Wellborn, who, uh, when she, as a part of her final project, she began to really delve into the idea of something called a Polonaise gown. And traditionally in costume history, Polonaise gowns were English gowns that had been tied up in the back. And people kept referring to that as a robe a la Polonaise because in costume history, people also like to use French terminology, which is something that we in our shop don't use since we were an English colony and we spoke English, we choose to use the English terminology. Um, but Brooke did a lot of research over what a Polonaise gown was, what it looked like, how it was constructed, and that actually resulted in her and another woman over the course of several years publishing an article. But she made what I feel is one of the first accurate robe la Polonaises or Polonaise gowns um, in modern times in our shop as a part of her final project. And so we are really proud of Brooke for the research that she's done for that garment and moving forward in the different ideas of clothing. And it's not just one, two, three. There's all these variations and and so, yeah. So over 60 years of the shop's history, <clears throat> you've evolved from being a, a retail shop that mm -hmm. talked a little bit about sewing to now uh, full-scale sort of research mm -hmm. reconstruction mm -hmm. um, 
shop mm -hmm. where you're not not only interpret the history but but recreate it for yeah. for people. Mm -hmm. what, what a wonderful progression! Yeah, it, it's 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 really an honor to be a part of, um, and as someone who has studied dress history as a part of my academic background, being able to wear the clothing that we make in that 18th century way, being able to research from our collection these beautiful 18th century original pieces and then making it as well in front of the public is this wonderful trifecta of experience and education that not only helps us in the millinery shop learn more about what we do but it creates a really great interpretive experience for our guests as well because we can really now engage with them about the nuances of dress in the 18th century women's roles in the 18th century and things where if we weren't able to do all the things that we did and if the shop wasn't here, we might be missing out on. So many wonderful layers of history. I feel like a visitor could come and spend the whole day in the millinery shop. We've had a few, yeah. And just keep learning <laughs> new great. things in the millinery shop. Yeah, no, we love it when we have, a, that happens every now and then. We'll have a guest who just, she comes in, usually it's a she, but sometimes it's a man and they come in and they just sit down and they're interested and they just want to spend time with us and talk to us and pick our brains and we're more than happy to sit and just talk. Well, yeah. there really is that much history there and it's true of all the trades in the yeah, historic area. Is. So we hope that all of our visitors get a chance to come out and visit the Margaret Hunter Millinery Shop in its 60th anniversary year. Mm -hmm. Abby, thank you so much for being our guest thank today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We're always glad to hear from you. Send comments or suggestions from our webpage at podcast.history.org or find us on Facebook. To support the podcast and other Colonial Williamsburg programs, visit history.org slash donate.